Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, how's it going? We are in, I guess, I'm, why am I asking how's it going? Like you're going to answer me? Send me an email, <laughs> vinnyangelo at gmail.com and let me know how you're doing. <laughs> we are almost at the end. Didn't ask is- how I was doing, Rob. <laughs> All right, all right, Let's no, be honest. We'll we know how you're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're acting like we haven't already talked today. Told me not to talk to you about it. <laughs> exactly. So we are, man. We see the light. I guess in a good kind of way. Yeah. But of Second Corinthians. Yeah. It, right. We're almost there. Yeah. And almost. I guess we are seeing the light because we're talking about the resurrection tonight. So look at that. Yeah. Double entendre. We started talking a little bit about. I don't. Know, we we kind of talked about First Corinthians fifteen mm-hmm. last week, yeah, but right. we didn't really get into the text. We talked right. about resurrection. Yeah. So what are we going to do tonight? Yeah, we're going to look at the text, First Corinthians chapter 15. So it's going to be exciting. Nice. This is like one of the great chapters in the scriptures. Like seriously, the, this, is like, this is like a yeah. Mount Rushmore of yeah. Bible chapters. Yeah. And I think it's okay to say some chapters are more significant than others. Like I'm well, not reading the genealogy and numbers like every day for devotional, but well, I, mean, I will Paul, meditate on First Corinthians 15. Paul would say that this is more important because he literally says, I'm, I've delivered what's of first importance. So he's yeah. saying this, this chapter is more important. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do, how do we want to start? Well, let's kind of just look at the basic structure of the text to begin with. How's that? Was, uh, and that is the chapter is really well outlined. And so to kind of give a, like a big picture and then we'll work our way down a little picture and we'll kind of go chapter by, and we're going to read most of the chapter tonight. So if you're listening to the podcast, and this is also a doozy of a chapter. There's a lot of words in this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So have your Bibles out. We'll go through it here as we go. But there's kind of three sections of the chapter, 15, 1 through 11, mm-hmm. talks about the fact of the resurrection. And this is something that Paul's like, hey, look, we're all in agreement on this. And so there's no debate about it, but Paul's reinforcing that. And it's going to be important for him. So that's verses 1 through 11. Then verses 12 through 34, Paul's going to say, now, based on our belief in the resurrection that we all agree on, you're denying the resurrection creates these problems. In some sense, we agree on this, yet somehow you're also saying that there is no resurrection. And that doesn't make any sense in light of what we already believe. And then verses 35 to 58, Paul addresses kind of the nature of the resurrection body. How then are the dead raised? Which might have been a question that they were asking. Well, wait a minute. In what sense are the dead even raised? So that's kind of the way we'll look at it. So we'll get started with the first 11 verses. You want to read, you want to read that? Yeah, sure. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, uh, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Amen. All right, he begins in verse one. This is the God. I'm going to remind you of something, guys, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. This is the gospel. Now, again, remember, as we've discussed many times now, that Paul is writing a letter that's 
the result of a situation that he's dealing with. Mm -hmm. So, cause we look at this creed or the, the statement in verses three through five, and it talks about Jesus' death, about his resurrection, about his resurrection appearances. So, oh, that's the gospel. And, and sometimes what we do often in Christianity is we, modern day Christianity in the church, evangelical church, we simplify the gospel to like, Jesus died for your sins, repent of your sins, confess him as Lord, and, and you shall be saved. The creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' mm -hmm. Creed, they, they do the same thing. They kind of skip over the life and the substance of Jesus' life. And we've talked about this before. And it's like the substance of Jesus' life is very significant because he's showing us what the kingdom of God looks like. And so when we look at this gospel here, and it only talks about his death and resurrection, it's because that's the point at hand was the resurrection. The other part wasn't really up, up for dispute. So I want to remind you of the gospel. Then he says in verse three, and I, I delivered to you what I also received. And I think we mentioned this in a previous uh, episode uh, before, but the words delivered and received in Greek actually refer to the transmission of sacred tradition. Mm. This is something that I received, meaning Paul didn't write this part. I got this from somewhere else, most likely verses three through five. And I got this from somewhere else and I'm delivering it to you. But what he received and what he's delivering is sacred tradition mm -hmm. being passed on to you. And this is interesting. I remember the first time I was ever approached with this concept of being received. There's a very you know, popular Christian apologist named Mike Lacona. He's a biblical scholar and he he does a lot on the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And and I remember when I was first studying this and he he brought this idea of, uh, you know, something received. And it's like, this was a Christian tradition. This was a saying that Paul didn't make up. Right. This was around before him, which is very significant because this is a very early Christian letter, yes. which means he's not just making this up in the, where do we put this at? Late forties, early fifties. The uh, letter? Yeah, uh, 55, I think it is. Okay, Somewhere okay. Mid 50s. Yep. So, this is something that predates that. So, this is something that's happening, you know, from a while. Right. It's not like Paul's inventing Christianity here. Right. The creed is an ancient Christian creed, and, and, and it's verses three through five. Mm -hmm. it, it appears that verses six through eight is probably something that Paul added to the creed. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll discuss that as we, as we move forward. But the creed itself is something that Paul received. And the question becomes, well, like, well, when did Paul receive it? Well, the fact that it refers to Peter as Cephas, and again, it could refer to Peter as Cephas because that was the situation in Corinth, and some say we follow Cephas, and some say we follow Paul. But if this is a creed, then Paul's not going to change the name of it. The reference to Cephas, which is his Aramaic name, that's Peter's name in Aramaic, suggests that it's old, when he was still known as Cephas. Obviously, as the gospel goes out to the Gentile world, he becomes known perhaps as Peter. Because Peter also, would be his, would that be more of his uh, Gentile name, if you will? It'd be, yeah, it's, it's a name in Greek, essentially, right? Yeah. yeah. So the same thing with like Paul and Saul. It's not like he, it's not like Saul became Paul. It's just he would have a Jewish name and a Greek name. Yes. Mm -hmm. But uh, Kephas and Peter are the same name, just okay. in different okay. languages. Okay. Whereas Saul and Paul are two are different, different names. names. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Paul does, they are two different names. Peter would only have had one name because okay. he's Jewish and he lives in, and he's Galilean and he's not. He's not a part of the Roman world. Paul was a Roman citizen. A Roman so citizen. Okay. Paul would have had three names. But we don't know his third name. Oh, so Saul is Paul. Well, his third name would have indicated when the, his family received Roman citizenship. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like from whom or where was he or what they did or something like that. So it might be an emperor's name. It might be some dignitary's name. It might be some whenever they got it, but we don't know what that was. So which suggests that maybe it was his grandfather even. It's been around for a few generations, and that's why the name, that third name has slipped, but it's simply not stated. Hmm. Uh, but Peter probably has one name, but his name in Greek is Peter, name in Hebrew, or Aramaic is, is Kephas or Cephas. So do we know, 
then when he received it, how long did it take for him to receive it? Is this something where he, for, if for he Paul? probably, yeah, he probably just didn't receive this thing a month oh. or two before that. I like, thought you're talking about uh, his, sorry. his citizenship. No, 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 no. no, no sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So the gospel, <laughs> the creed. There's two parts of the creed that suggest it's, it's antiquity. That, and or again, if you're listening here, I date the death of, and resurrection of Jesus in the year 30. So Paul becomes a Christian maybe as early as 33 AD. Mm-hmm. He begins his ministry 48 or so uh, AD. So you got this little gap in there. Writes this letter maybe in the mid 50s, 55, 56. So that's kind of our time frame, 25 years after the death of Jesus. So early on in Paul's conversion, he, he spent three years in Damascus and then he snuck down to Jerusalem. And then he goes back up into Tarsus for 10 years or, or more. First off, the name Cephas or Cephas indicates its Aramaic antiquity. And the fact that the disciples are called the 12, mm-hmm. that, that's, just a, that's just an ancient name for them. The, the, mm-hmm. the 12, it's simply not used later on, suggests that this, come, that this came about very, very early. So when did Paul receive it? Well, it could have been in the early, mid, you know, maybe when he snuck down to Jerusalem and he met with the disciples, as we'll talk about in the book of Galatians, chapter one. Maybe that's when Paul received it, but the creed itself obviously existed already when Paul receives it. So we suspect this creed could be as much as, or as few as three years after after the death, death of Jesus that this creed uh, is circulating around. Hmm. Which in in an ancient context, three years is like, that's quick. Yeah. Because I mean, it's not an instantaneous culture like we have today where you get something that goes viral, as we could say, and tomorrow it's the big thing. I mean, three years is not like, it's not like, oh, that's a, that's a long time that it took for something to develop. It's like, no, this is for, for something to become tradition and creedal in three years that, you know, there's a lot of validity to it in my mind. Yeah. So remember, creeds also are formed because of a pressing need, hmm. right? And so I know you and I have done a lot of work with with the issue of the Trinity and the, yeah. and the, and the council the early of Nicaea councils. in the year yeah. 325. And so the idea, oh, well, Jesus is never declared to be officially God until the Council of Nicaea in 325. Like, no, the reason why the Nicene Creed arises in 325 is because no one questioned it beforehand or mm-hmm. no one of prominence questioned it beforehand, or it didn't gain traction, the denial of his resur- of Jesus's mm-hmm. deity beforehand. So now you have this issue in 325 where it's gaining traction it's becoming popular we could address this what's our answer and so they say this is our answer and they and they form a creed as far as part of the answer is so you suspect that the creed this this particular creed which affirms his death and his resurrection and the appearance to peter and then to the 12 was probably situated in the fact that hey as this as we are growing we need to have some things that we recognize the fact that this is the core this is this is what we're holding to and so as far as the resurrection of Jesus concerns, I think verses three through five, uh, Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day and appeared to Peter and then in the 12, or to Cephas and, and then in the 12. That probably came, all, came along early as maybe as they grew into Samaria, as, as they started to, to expand a little bit, that becomes a necessity to make sure, hey, the gospel is going from Jerusalem and from us, and here's what it is. Yeah. And this wouldn't be the only hypothesis of, of a creed in the right. new testament in philippians chapter 2 right uh verses 5 through 11 yep. uh the christ hymn the carmen christi right. that's that's what you know people or scholars believe that yeah paul probably didn't invent that either that's probably something that was circulating before him i'm trying to think if there's other ones colossians in 1 verses 15 that's through right. 18 yes another, yeah, yeah, yeah another one that's yep. probably very much yeah. like creed or 15 yeah. to 20 15 through 20 yeah yeah so this creed starts with jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures 
which is really interesting because remember, if you read the gospels and when we're all done with our new Testament studies, we're going to go back and spend more time in the gospels because we went over them so quickly. The disciples were like, what does rising from the dead mean? I think it's Mark chapter nine, verses nine and 10, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 31 and 32, uh, somewhere right, right around there. Mark nine, 31, 32 also. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, guys, and it's going to be great, but then they're going to beat me and, and mock me and, and scourge me, and then they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. And the disciples are like, what's rising from the dead mean? They, mm. they were not expecting a dying Messiah. So a rising Messiah didn't make any sense at all, as we discussed last week. When he says, oh, he died according to the scriptures, you're like, well, what scriptures are you talking about? Most likely, he's talking about the famous hymn of Isaiah 53, which technically starts in chapter 52, verse 13. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 talks about the servant who dies and who's, or who suffers. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and things of that nature there. And then it says, and he was buried, which obviously is essential because you can't have a, you can't verify a resurrection unless you know that there was a tomb. Hmm. Oh, we know he died. Cool. But oh, you can't say he rose again. Well, yeah, there's no body. It's like, well, no one knows whatever happened to his body anyways. Ah, the tomb becomes a necessary uh, element there. And then he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And this one's really interesting. Raised on the third day, according to, you're like, what scripture? There mm-hmm. really literally are no scriptures to appeal to here. Mm-hmm. We can say the death of Jesus, according to the scriptures, was Isaiah 53. But what do you mean he was risen? This is verse four. He was raised again on the third day, according to the, or raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Like, And the only thing that we can draw analogy to or comparison with maybe the story of Jonah. Yeah. Which is but what the, Jesus appeals to, but that's yeah, not right. really, it's not prophecy. It's, no. it's not like, Oh, the scriptures say he's, yeah. so, but it worked. Uh, anyways, and then it says, and he appeared to Peter or the, or, or Cephas, which is interesting, right? Because note that the women are omitted here because mm. the gospels are really clear. The first witnesses of the resurrection of the empty tomb mm-hmm. was indeed the women. And then the women go and tell the disciples and Peter and John and John's omitted here too. Peter and John come racing to the tomb and John was faster so he got there first, according to the gospel of John, anyway, right? But of course, Peter's the leader. That's not a problem at all. Peter's mm-hmm. the leader. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. We're also missing the two people, you know, the, uh, Cleopas and his wife, most likely on the road to Emmaus and other resurrection appearances there. But nonetheless, that's probably the creed. Now, Paul, most likely he adds verses six through eight. Yeah. Oh, by the way, he also appeared to more than 500 brothers, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I mean, the reason why that makes sense uh, as I know you're well familiar with this, because Paul's appealing to the people in Corinth yep. saying, hey, guys, they're still alive. You can go It's an apologetic. Them. Yeah. Go, yeah. Go, go, it, there's the defense right there. We have all these eyewitnesses. Yeah, exactly. So go ask them. Some of them are still alive. So that's not going to be a creed that would have existed three yeah. years after the death of Jesus, because obviously everyone is alive. alive. Yeah. yeah, they're all alive. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, and we don't have any record of that. So we have no mm-hmm. like, oh, when did that happen? Then he appeared to James. Now, this James very likely, of course, is James, the brother of Jesus, who becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Peter is forced to flee for his own sake, his own life. And after James, the brother of uh, John was killed. This is in the mm-hmm. book of Acts, right? Uh, I think we're in Acts 12 now. So James is killed, the brother of John, and Peter's forced to flee for his life. And then James, the brother of Jesus, now becomes the leader of the church. Who we would see in Acts 15 preside over the Jerusalem council. Exactly. And he's clearly the leader of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15. No question about it. And of course, this is probably the same James that wrote the book of James, which might be the earliest New Testament writing that yeah. we have. 
So James is, is prominent, and James is the leader of the Aramaic-speaking church in Jerusalem. He's And what's interesting about that, as a side note here, is in John 7, Jesus' brothers come to him and kind of mockingly say, hey, Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem and show yourself off there? Because obviously that's where all prophets you know, need to go. And it says in John 7, it says, they knew full well that the authorities in Jerusalem wanted to have him killed. Mm-hmm. So they're like, just, just go die, Jesus. His own brothers do not believe in him and are not following him. Now, by the way, they were there. They were with Mary at different times. You know, they, they saw some miracles. They know, they know things that are going on, but they did not believe in him. And now James becomes not only a Christian, but the leader of the church. And most people will appeal to this passage and say, the reason why James became a Christian is because Jesus appeared. Pretty cool, by the way. Your brother appears to you after dying from that. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I'd like it, but my, <laughs> uh, not my brothers. No, not going to happen. But anyways, you get the idea. And then it says he appeared also uh, to me. And I'm the least of all the apostles because I'm mm-hmm. like, the last, I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God uh, in verse nine. So, yep, that's the basis yeah. of this creed. It's interesting for the first time it hit me when, when it says he appeared to more than 500, most who are still alive. He's not saying merely, okay, go ask this guy or go ask that guy. He's like, there's a huge appeal there. Mm-hmm. And in, in Jewish law, an eyewitness testimony is credible when you have two or three witnesses. Right. And he's like saying, hey, there's 500 of them. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> so anyway, I, just, I don't, that just yeah. struck yeah. me there. What we've learned about Paul is he'll bring up things because it's an issue. So th- there's a sense in which they don't believe that he was raised. And he addresses that like, hey, if you, if you believe in vain, like that's a problem. And so what's, what's he doing with the fact that, you know, there might not be belief that this happened? Well, so let's move into the next section then. So before we do that, let me finish off with one last thought on verse 11. And I think okay. your question then leads into the next section. In verse 11, he says, like, this is what I preached and this is what you believed. The first part of this chapter is I'm establishing what is the gospel that I, I was given and that I sent to you, I gave to you and you believe this. So, all right, step one is we all, we're all in agreement here. Hey, by the way, if you guys believe this, then why are you saying there's no resurrection of the dead? So let's read verses 12 through 19. Then we'll address your question. Okay. So verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Yeah. Gosh, and that's that, that's always one of those sections that is such a weird mouthful to read. You got to yeah, read it really yeah. slow and say, okay, what's he saying here? Right, right. So Paul begins this section then by saying, look, in light of our preaching on the resurrection, then the fact that I preached it in verse 11 and you believed it, then how can some of you deny it? Now, as we said before, we're not sure exactly what we what they meant or what Paul means when they were denying the resurrection. We suspect that it's something along the lines of, We've attained the status of spirituality. Our speaking in tongues is proof of it. We speak in the tongues of men and of angels. We've arrived. You know, we, we've gotten there. And there's like, therefore, no need for the resurrection. And Paul's like, wait a minute. We preached the resurrection. You believed it. And if that's the case, then you can't say that Christ didn't rise from the dead. 
And then he goes on to make four points in this passage. We'll just go over that quickly. He says in verse 14, he's like, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, because if the rest, if the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching and your faith is useless. And then secondly, he's like, and oh, by the way, verse 15, we're, we're false witnesses because we testify because this is the gospel, right? The gospel is he died for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. So we're false witnesses. And then verse 17 is like, and number three, um, by the way, that means you're still in your sins because if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then you're still in your sins. And then fourth, he says, oh, and um, we're to be pitied more than all men. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we above all men are to be pitied. See, we sacrifice pleasure and things of that nature in this life because we're sacrificing for the sake of God's kingdom and not indulging in the things and cravings of the world, which actually brings harm and destruction to the world. That's why we don't do it. But why are we giving all that up? Eat, drink, and be, and be merry for tomorrow we die. He's, he's going to say in verse 32, we might as well just do that. Yeah. And it is this this long string of what we would call if-then conditional yeah. clauses, right? If right. this, then this. Uh, and it, it's, it's just really cool. One of those things to kind of see his logic yeah, you know, during this whole thing. So this next section is then extremely critical yeah. to understand. This kind of becomes the, his justification for what he has just said. Yeah. Uh, so starting at verse 20 uh, through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death and by a man uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection mm -hmm. under him that God may be all in all. Yeah, Another one good. of those mouth, mouth yeah, yeah. full of the sections. But a really, really rich passage. So let's, mm -hmm. let's kind of take our time a little bit with this one here. So Paul, this is something we would say, like when you're reading it on your own, don't go that fast, slow it down. Yeah, he's saying yeah. a lot here. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and diagramming, it really helps mm -hmm. you kind of listen to pay yep. attention to it or meditating upon it and saying yep. it over and over and over and over again. Great way to go. So Paul's argument is, but Christ has been raised. So we preach Christ's resurrection from the, from the dead. Some of you are denying it. doesn't make any sense. Our faith is useless. You're to be pitied more than all men. This doesn't make any sense. Oh, but verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he says he's the first fruit from among the dead, meaning mm -hmm. Christ's resurrection started something. And what it started was the process of the dead rising from the dead, and namely our resurrection will now happen because of Christ's resurrection. So he's the first one, and we're the ones that are then to follow. And the significance of that end is, you know, we talk this big word eschatology, which is the study of the end times. And there's different schools of eschatology, right? Not going to get into mm -hmm. it. And one of the things that I always say is, A, I'm not going to tell you what school I adopt or I hold to because people have strong opinions on these issues. And it's one of those, oh, if you hold to this view, then you think that and like, I don't think all that stuff necessarily. And but if you want to Venmo me at VinnieAngelo at gmail.com, I will tell you what Rob believes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. That's right. So the other problem becomes then that 
you get you get pigeonholed, and then if somebody doesn't like your view of eschatology, mm-hmm. yep. then they don't listen to everything else that you have to say. Because you're like, a heretic, you don't believe yeah, what I believe, so you're it, obviously yeah. yeah. It's like, come on, why are we doing this stuff? Mm-hmm. We have things to learn from each other. But yeah. the one thing I would say is, I don't care what view you hold, as long as you have a strong enough opinion of the presence of Christ's reign. I know yeah. you can believe He's going to come back from heaven and reign for a thousand years on the earth. That's pre-millennial. You can believe that. That's fine. totally mm-hmm. fine. Or you can believe that it's all the millennium is now. But either way, you need to have a strong view of the present reign of Christ. So mm-hmm. we say the death and resurrection of Christ is kind of set in motion, the, what we call the end times, namely that his resurrection was the first one and everyone else that, that is then going to follow. So he says in verse t- uh, 23, and then each one will rise in his own turn, first Christ, and then when he comes, those who belong with him. So Jesus' resurrection is set in motion, the end. Mm-hmm. Then the next phase is when he comes, he will resurrect the rest of us. And then comes the end, verse 24. Mm-hmm. And the end is what? Well, there's two parts to the end, he says. He's going to deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. And secondly, he's going to abolish all rule and authority. Ah, So right now we talk about it this way, and that would be we currently live in this in-between time where Jesus's death and resurrection have already happened. He's already begun what we call the end times. And yet at the same time, We've been redeemed and all that good stuff, but we live in the world of sin and death and decay. Satan's been defeated on the cross, yet he still reigns and he still rules. And he will until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, he's going to abolish all rule and authority, only Mm -hmm. his kingdom. So right now, Christ's kingdom exists and the kingdoms of the world exist simultaneously. But when he returns, he destroys all the other kingdoms and only Christ. And then verse 25, and he must reign. And I think that's currently until he's put all his enemies under his feet and all things then are subject to him. And so, we call this the already, but not yet. Christ's yeah. kingdom has already been inaug- inaugurated, but it has not yet fully been consummated yet. And that's mm-hmm. what we're, that's that great hope that we're waiting right. for. And don't think of the already as like happening in heaven mm-hmm. as a spiritual location, uh, this distant from here. Yeah. No, heaven is where God dwells. It's all around us. That permeates every fabric of, of the creation. And yet at the same time, there is the the reign of the kings of the of the earth. I mean, now. appealing to Colossians one, you talked about that. Paul's point is that like, yeah, yeah, all things, whether visible or invisible, even thrones and rulers and principalities, authorities, they all have been created by Jesus and for Him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, Matthew twenty eight, like all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right. Not it's not future tense. Yeah. Uh, so Paul he quote Psalm 110, which is a like, this is a highly quoted Psalm in the New Testament. Right. uh, And he applies it to Jesus here. Yes. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage Mm -hmm. in the entire New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's quoted often. Jesus quotes it in the gospels. Why does David call the Messiah Lord? Right. And the book of Hebrews quotes it several times. So Psalm 110 verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, which Jesus quotes this path, this part, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord is God, Yahweh, Yahweh. Mm-hmm. said to my Lord, which is Christ or the Messiah, sit at my right hand. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Paul continues on. Uh, so verses 29 through 34, he says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers and sisters, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. 
What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Pretty self-explanatory. We can probably <laughs> just skip on to the next section, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What Paul's getting at here in a couple places is like, the point of that is, he's like, okay, oh, by the way, let me show you the absurdity of, of life without the resurrection, especially in light of what you guys are doing. Now, what they were doing, we don't really know. But, oh, by the way, why are you guys baptizing for the dead? If there's no resurrection, then they're dead. So don't worry about them. Now, people have used this, right, yeah. in some religious groups to say, mm -hmm. oh, the New Testament teaches resurrection or baptism for the dead, you know, baptize for them so that they can be redeemed after mm -hmm. they're already dead and they can be resurrected. But all we know is Paul's like saying, you guys are doing this and it doesn't make any sense if you don't believe in resurrections. It doesn't mean necessarily, and you can go either way with this, that Paul's saying, oh, by the way, that's a wrong practice. Mm -hmm. He's just simply saying, why are you doing this if there is no such thing as resurrections? So what were they doing? I think is difficult to discern actually. So, right, and then he goes on to say, okay, hey, by the way, why do we continue to face such, such opposition? Again, this is one of those, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I'm, I fought wild beasts at Ephesus, he says, right? And why am I doing these things? Which, by the way, is a figure of speech, because as a Roman citizen, he can't be fed to the wild beasts. But the point of that is, he's had really difficult situations facing him. It's like, why am I doing all this if the resurrection doesn't actually ex exist? In fact, if the dead are not raised, then eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So there you go. Done. <laughs> Done. So the next section... Uh, starting at verse 35, he goes on and he addresses our resurrected bodies, like what resurrection I look, looks like, which is, that's the logical conclusion for everything. Right. You know, verse 35 says so like, well, some of you are going to say like, well, then how are the dead raised? Is that, that's like an argument against, like, no, this doesn't make any sense because how are they, how are they raised? Um, and Paul's basically going to say, look, the body that dies is the body that rises. And so let's look at uh, verses 42 through 40. Let's, let's do 42 through 49. Okay. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in, it is sown a natural body. It, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right. And again, so Paul's point here now is, well, the nature of the resurrection body is, is that the body dies and then it rises again. Um, and the, I think the key is actually is when he says it, the body that's sown, it is It was so imperishable. It is raised imperishable. Meaning it's the same one. Now we can discuss scientific reality of the fact that the, you know, 
somebody that died 2000 years ago, maybe they died in the wilderness somewhere and never got buried. Their bodies decayed and who knows mm -hmm. what, I don't think we need to worry about that. The reality is the body that rises is a physical resurrected body. It may be substantively different mm -hmm. than our current flesh. I don't think we know the answer to that, but it is a physical body. It's flesh. It's, you know, we can speculate all day long about stuff like this and I don't really care to do it, but Jesus People will say, oh, well, Jesus' body retained the scars because look, you know, but it retained the scars for a reason, mm -hmm. right? I think if somebody loses a leg in a war, then that doesn't mean that they're going to be resurrected with, with one less leg. I, I don't I don't suspect that's the case at all. I think there was a reason why Jesus' resurrected body retained its scars, the mm -hmm. nails, the, the, the proof. Hey, guys, this really did happen. Mm -hmm. But the point, though, is, look, it's sown perishable, meaning it can die. It's going to be raised imperishable. It cannot die. There's no more death. It's sown in dishonor, but it's going to be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's going to be raised in power. And then this, this fourth one's also misunderstood at times. It says it's sown a natural body. It's going to be raised a spiritual body. Ah, mm -hmm. see, mm -hmm. it's spiritual. Like, no, he's already talking about it being raised. It is the physical body that died. So by spiritual, he means a body that is dominated by the spirit versus a body that's dominated by the flesh. So Paul, then he finishes with this really good reminder that we need a bodily resurrection. The perishable must put on the imperishable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you want to read verses 50 through 58 to finish? Yeah, the chapter? yeah. Yeah. So he says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this. This perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Yeah, there you go. All right. Excellent. So he begins by saying, look, guys, here's the situation. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, people take that to say, oh, see, the resurrected body is not a, it's not material. No, flesh and blood means mortal. It doesn't mean like not material. Uh, oh, material versus immaterial. He's already said the body that dies is the body that rises. He's saying flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom of God. And by that, he means like it's the, the mortal body that we have now cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, this kind of goes back, like maybe an apologetic note here. We look at the story in the, in Genesis and go, you know, God brought death. That's ridiculous. Well, why, you know, Adam and Eve sinned. They, he could have punished them and made them take a time out, you know, whatever it might be, right? Why does he impose death on them? And this was because death enables resurrection mm -hmm. and resurrection enables being restored to a perfected, glorified humanity. If, we only got a time out for our sins or some punishment that for our sins, but we live forever, then Hitler's still alive. Because hmm. see, some people will never be redeemed and don't choose to be redeemed. And they're going to stay alive also. So death is the means by which we can destroy sin and, and its effects, as well as bring about eternal life. In other words, it's the most loving gift God could have done was allowing death to be the result because it brings about the fact that we can re resurrect. 
But in verse 51, he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to tell you a mystery, which means it's no longer a mystery because he's telling it to you. <laughs> but, and, but, and that's just the case throughout the entire New Testament. Mysteries in the New Testament are always revealed. So he's, we're not all going to sleep, which is a figure of speech for dying. We're not all going to die. And again, I think Paul and the early Christians thought the resurrection, the second coming of Jesus was going to happen really, really soon. So we're not all going to die, but we will all be changed or we will all rise. And this happens at the return of Christ. This is what's going to happen. So if, and it's going to be in a flash with a twinkling of an eye. It's going to be a trumpet sound. And then the dead will be rise and we'll all be changed. And we'll probably talk about this more when we get to First Thessalonians because Paul mm -hmm. adds a couple of details in First Thessalonians as well. And his answers, and then the perishable, which is our current flesh, becomes imperishable, and the mortal becomes immortal, and death is swallowed up in victory. This is a little taunt. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Which is kind of a statement from the book of Hosea. And his answer is, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, awesome. Now, when we were reading this passage, you you had mentioned first Thessalonians. There's this language of a trumpet blast. Yeah. And I last year I was teaching a, um, a an eschatology class, and so when I was getting ready to approach the rapture passage, because that's what you know popularly everyone thinks first Thessalonians four is about mm -hmm. the rapture. And so as I'm reading different viewpoints that would hold to you know a popular understanding of rapture, where it, you know it happens in a blink of an eye, and all the Christians are gone, and everything's chaos in the world, and all that right. kind of thing. I was surprised that this is one of the three passages yeah. that are oftentimes associated with that. Uh, so first Thessalonians four is like the rapture passage, but then first Corinthians 15 was put there and I'm reading this and I'm like, there's I guess, nothing in here. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so we shouldn't read this as a rapture passage well, unless okay. what we mean by the rapture is the return of Christ. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah. Let's clarify. All right. So people will go like, what's your view of the tribulation pre-trib, mid-trib or post-trib? I'm like, uh, none of the above. Yeah. Well, do you believe in the rapture? Like, well, I know what you're asking. So the answer is no, mm -hmm. but technically the answer is yes. Yeah. So the idea of a rapture, rapere in Latin, that means to seize or to be caught up. And it comes from First Thessalonians 4, and we'll talk about it more. And how do we deal with the First Thessalonians 4 passage when we get there? Like in like in a couple of years, 2030. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as we do the Bible, the New Testament in a year, or I think we should say the New Testament in a decade. That would be a lot better. <laughs> exactly. But Nonetheless, what's happening is the idea is that Christ is going to come down and the dead, those who have followed Christ, are going to rise up and join him in the air to return to earth with him. The idea of a rapture, as it's commonly talked about, so like, do you believe in the rapture? What they mean by that is, do you believe that Christ returns part way, we get raptured up into heaven, spend three and a half or seven years with Christ, depending on your view of the rapture, and then return with him? Like, no, I don't believe that. All right. Now, oh, so you're a post-tribulation rapture, which means you believe that the rapture happens, uh, that, that Christ comes down, we go up and we come back. Like, no, because the idea of a tribulation is this, oh, it's a seven-year span mm -hmm. of time at the end of history. I don't, that's not what's happening there either. The tribulation is what God's people suffer now and have been suffering since the beginning of, of time, but certainly since the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in Acts 14, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. So I don't, this, this notion of a tribulation. So that's why I can say, no, I don't believe in any of the three views of the tribulation. Mm -hmm. But the rapture, the idea of, well, us going up, well, yeah, that happens. We do go up. But 
I don't believe in the rapture in the sense of what you mean by it or what's popularly meant by it. Like, oh, mm-hmm. we go up and spend three and a half or seven years with Christ and only return with him. No, all Paul's saying is like, we go up in order to come back down and Christ comes back down as we'll get to in the book of Revelation, which might happen like 2050 if I'm still alive. <laughs> but uh, what happens in, in the book of Revelation is that when Christ comes down, the new Jerusalem comes mm-hmm. down. The new creation comes down. I saw a new heaven, new earth, and I saw the Holy City, the new Jerusalem coming down out of, out of heaven from God. With Christ are the souls of those who have died, their bodies getting resurrected and being reunited, whatever that might mean, and those who are still alive at the time going up. So is there a rapture? Well, in that sense, yes, but not in the sense of popular parlance. You should write a commentary on Revelation. You know, I, if I had some time, I would. It's almost done. It's almost done. Sure it is. Will well, it be done this year? Like like in the New Testament New Year? It'll be done this year in the sense that it'll be submitted to the publisher and then it will and I hope to have that by the summer. And then it'll come back from the publisher for maybe some re-edits. That that process may be happening over the course of another year. So, okay. Yeah. So cool. it won't be in print probably for two years, just because this is a long process. And you have to get reviewers to review it and you get to give them four or five months to read it and stuff like that also. Wow. And then there's those guys who pump out like two commentaries a year. It's like, (laughs) dude, do you have a life? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever eat? Do you sleep? I mean, do you watch Man United football, soccer games? I mean, come on. (laughs) Exactly. Some kind of enjoyment in life. Play golf once in a while. I know I don't. I have a kid. Children. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. It's not a rapture passage. So what is the point of this passage then? The point of this passage is uh, an affirmation of, this is what's going to happen. This is the hope that we have. This is what we are to look forward to. Not only do we confess that the gospel is that Jesus Christ died, was buried, resurrected on the third day and appeared to all these people, and that we preach this and we suffer for this and our suffering is not in vain. Um, and But the fact that this is the blessed hope that we're looking forward to, that he not only has risen from the dead, but that we too will rise with him and be with mm-hmm. him for, for eternity. And there'll be no more death. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. The first things have passed away. Hmm. Yeah, that's good news. Oh, and, and and that's literally, well, and, and I mean tying it back to, you know, rereading the, uh, you know, if we were to go back to the beginning of the chapter, like in light of that whole context, if we go back to that hymn, starting in verse three, mm-hmm. for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Caiaphas, then to the 12, then he appeared. Like, this is the good news. It's happened to Jesus and it's going to happen to us as well. Right. And that's that's what makes it the gospel. That's what makes it good news. Right, right. And it doesn't mean that the other parts of the gospel of his death, of his life and preaching and are insignificant it's like this is the part that he's focusing on now yeah so this isn't exclusively the gospel as if those other things aren't mm-hmm. part of the gospel also that they are but this is this is the key and let's get to verse 58 now and look at this okay all right 58 yeah. therefore my beloved brothers and sisters be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that the labor that the, in the lord your labor is not in vain like yeah. is there a more uh just a more encouraging doxology. Right. Yeah. It's it's the application at the end of the sermon, right? And by the way, we may have mentioned this on a previous episode a while ago, but this is the longest ex- extended speech of Paul on any one topic. He spends mm-hmm. more time on the resurrection in this one chapter than he does on any other topic. And it closes with, 
this this therefore my beloved brothers or my my beloved brothers and sisters and the greek is really emphatic like mm. this is clearly a conclusion the, the word therefore is often this conclusion and this con like to sum it all up and then the, the reference to my beloved brothers that we've mentioned a few times is to get your attention it often introduces a section or it can close a section and here it's clearly associated with therefore so it's closing a section therefore my beloved brothers Here's what I want you to do. Be firm and immovable. I know because we know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and because he's the first fruit and you're going to rise too, then guess what that means? It means hang in there, be firm. Don't worry about it. Endure persecution, endure suffering, hang in there till the end because we know what's going to happen. As a result, be outstanding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Ah, excellent. Excellent. So I just wrote a chapter for a book that should be out this year. Sometimes it's a chapter in the book. So I didn't write the whole book on hope in the book of revelation. And it's like, that's the whole point. The whole point of it is, is that we have this hope. And we discussed this before where it doesn't mean that when someone's suffering and down and whatever, just, Oh, it's going to get all, it's going to be okay at the end. It's like, well, it's not that sense, but it is one of those sense of that is a truism that I, I can hang in there, I can endure this now because I know what's coming. Sometimes it's hard, especially people that have mental health issues. Um, it's really hard to hang in there, um, but as much as possible to, to just kind of dwell on the fact that, you know what, it is. Be, be firm and steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Awesome, man, what a great chapter. Seriously, this is one of those, there's certain chapters where you just want to bookmark in your brain that are important yeah. chapters in the Bible. First Corinthians 15 is one of those. Yeah. Uh, so return to it, read it slowly. There's so much there that we yeah. blew through, uh, but there's good stuff happening here. So cool. Next week, we're going to finish out first, th first Thessalonians, first Corinthians. Cool. So I think we're, we're getting close. We're getting close. All right. We will see everyone next week. No, you won't see anyone next week. It's a podcast. We can't see them. I'll be watching but, goodbye. you with every breath you I take. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.